1: Each badger marks
0: the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word biche, meaning digger.
2: Hello, everybody. I am James, the cricket badger, and welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. And. Uh, very excited about this one. We have basically a, a living legend of cricket journalism in our midst today. And uh, welcome, Shields Berry, to the podcast. He's got a new book out, perfectly timed for Christmas presents. And uh, we will talk to him a little bit about that, a little bit, a bit about the upcoming Ashes series as well. Shield's been there many times covering the game. And uh, I will bring him on so you can see him. And welcoming to the podcast. Good, uh, good afternoon to you, sir. Good afternoon, James. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you on. W- when was your last tour? I, I, it's kind of, with COVID and everything, everything's kind of gone a little mm-hmm. bit blurry, but I can remember uh, um, Danny Rubin and George giving you a presentation. It was on Twitter.
1: It was early last year, I, <clears throat> February 2020, uh, tour of South Africa. Yeah, um, the Johannesburg Test, which England won to clincher, series, <coughs> to clincher series 3-1. That was my last test match. Abroad as the Telegraph's uh, cricket correspondent. Uh, my esteemed colleague, Nicole, has taken over as cricket correspondent. And, and I'm now sort of slightly more backseat as the chief Telegraph cricket writer. So working from home a lot more.
2: That means you're not, that was your last tour then, wasn't it? So um, you won't be used to what the weather outside my window is snow and, and cold and nastiness. You're usually in warmer climes at this time.
1: Well, last winter was my first complete winter at home in England since 1976. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm getting inured. against a shock. Um, but actually, it's been, it's been lovely, hasn't it, until the last couple of days when it's become really wintry. But uh, yeah, I, I, I've always hated leaving England uh, in September, October to go abroad, even November, before the leaves go. If, you, if you're going to go abroad, it's when the leaves have gone. Um, and then take in January and February as well, if possible.
2: <laughs> I, I introduced you there as a, a legendary cricket journalist. You've got a long and distinguished career behind you. Um, you wrinkle your nose at that. Some would say, however, me included, that you're a very lucky person. That you Obviously, the skill is involved in the writing, but to have a career where you follow the sun, you follow England, you have a far longer career than a player does, I, I'd imagine there's some downs along the way, but it's been a, a decent
1: time, I guess. Um Yes. Um, I mean, it, it, in a way, it's, it's um, not by accident, because I, when I was a lad uh, in my last year at uni, I thought, what's the best vacation job out there? And I thought, yeah, being a, a Sunday Greek correspondent, i.e. Uh, working for The Observer, and that sort of uh, kept going for another 40-odd years, and it was just as a, as a souped-up vacation job. Um, it is the most uh, wonderful existence. I, I, I am yeah, the luckiest uh, of people to have had that time ending you know, just before COVID, I suppose. Um, everyone who's going on tour of Australia. I mean, it should be great cricket on the field, but it's not the lifestyle um, that it used to be. Uh, I think I'd done 11 tours of Australia and uh, my goodness, some good times were had by day and by night. I was going to mention COVID because you actually chose
2: quite a good time to step away from it, didn't you? Really, with everything that's going on in the world, kind of mm-hmm. retiring
1: from traveling abroad isn't that wasn't the worst time to do that? I know to think of filling out passenger locator forms at Heathrow. Uh, my my lovely colleague Nick is um, uh, due at Heathrow to fly to Australia um, today, and um, yeah, just the bureaucracy now that must be involved.
2: Did the love of cricket come a long time before the job application or did the cricket
1: develop as a love? I was born a mile from Bramall Lane, James. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, at uh, the age of five or six, I could remember the roar, you know, when Yorkshire had taken a wicket or something or won a game. So, yeah, I, I was bo- uh, born and brought up about a mile from Bramall Lane. And so my uh, idyllic uh, childhood years was spent there when, the 1960s, when Yorkshire won the championship seven times in the decade, and they were so good uh, that they beat Australia by an innings, West Indies, by an innings, India, New Zealand. I'd be surprised. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, so they were, they were as good as any team in the world at home. My My surname has got two T's in it, and
2: I spent mm. most of my life before Joss Butler came along and made it a lot easier for me, spent most of my life saying double T, I'd imagine your, your Christian name, um, which is spelled S-C-Y-L-D, Shield. I bet you've had to spell that a few times, haven't
1: you? Uh, well, nobody asked me when I was at school. Um, <laughs> I just didn't bother going that far. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was quite convenient when I got to Australia and um, people asked me my name and what my second tour. um, I I could say Shield as in Sheffield Shield, because I was born in Sheffield and they've got the Sheffield Shield. So what a mnemonic, as they say, a way to
2: remember it. Obviously, with all of the tours that you've done, was it 45, 46 years you spent traveling
1: abroad? Oh, Um, no, not nearly as long. Um, 77 till 2020. So that's only about 43, isn't it?
2: Yeah, we're well, get, getting on towards that then, isn't it? The, I, I mean, you're a single man to start with. Obviously, you've, mm. got, a, you, you've got a family and a, a wife. Um, mm. Part way through that, you, you need a fairly understanding family, I guess, if you're going to just disappear off to the sunshine for a while.
1: I'm not sure the kids noticed. Um, <laughs> I mean, occasionally, I was able to bring them out on holiday, um, and that made, a, yeah. I mean, what could be better than going to day's test cricket and then going home to see your family? I mean. To have been able to done that uh, that was uh, so lucky uh, uh my wife's the uh, the strongest person I've ever met uh amongst several other superlatives um so you know she overtly uh, hardly battered and I went off uh, to say bye darling I'll be back in uh, March or something <laughs> um, uh yeah she managed to keep the, the show on the road with three kids um so I wouldn't have been able to do um any but without her. A lot of
2: talk about the England players getting their wives and girlfriends abroad mm. this winter. Did uh, Sanita's your wife, isn't it? Did, that yeah. that lesson? Um did did she ever come across and uh, and spend a bit of time in the sun with you in the winters or?
1: Oh yes, yeah. I mean quite often, um particularly if it was a Christmas tour abroad, um, then 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 she come out. So I I hope that she and the kids have had a good time in, in various locations around the world.
2: Ash is not too far away, only about ten, nine, ten days now it starts. Will there be part of you um, um, envious that you're not there this time?
1: Um, yes, I mean, I suppose. Um, yeah, when the first ball is about to be bowled, I'd love to be um, in Brisbane. Not so much in the present press box because you're a sort of very wide extra cover um and it's sealed, they're conditioned. Um, so you can't hear the um the Gabba's um, cheering of Stuart Broad as he goes out there. Um and <laughs> yeah, I sure, mean I'm not sure Our
2: cheering's the right word for that now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was being polite. And um jeering is should, should be pronounced, shouldn't it? Uh anyway, I, the 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 real significant change in my time as a cricket correspondent was that um, when you went abroad 40 years ago, um, I don't think um, any press box was air conditioned. They were all open to the elements. I mean, there would be a roof, so you didn't get sunstroke during the day. Um, but otherwise, in you know, every press box, you could be out there and not just see, but hear and feel uh, and sense Body language of the players, the mood of the crowd, um, but one by one, those those senses have been taken away. So that almost every press box now is entirely insulated mm. uh, and air conditioned and without a window, and so you can see what's going on. You know, maybe a very good view, like say from the Lord's press box, but you can't hear or feel or anything going on. I mean, I remember the. Um, when the new Lord's Press Box was unveiled in 2000 and England, and that Lord's Test bowled West Indies out for 50 odd. Apparently, some people got excited. I mean, there, there were people in the crowd who were um, uh, shouting and cheering in the press box. It was just complete silence. I mean, <laughs> a pin could have dropped, you know, so none of the drama. Filtered mm-hmm. through. Almost every press box is like that now, and and also, I think the the new one in Perth has it, got a, a press box that's sort of nearer behind the arm. But but so many uh, Australia's st- stadia don't have a good press box view, so that minimises my regret at not being there. The fact that you've got you know a better view on
2: television. You talk about that in the book, don't you? Might as well just name the book. It's, it's on the title of this podcast, but Beyond the Boundaries Travels on England Cricket Tours. I mean, I, I've been abroad a fair few times, not covering England, but covering county cricket pre-seasons and what have you. And I've been to South Africa and to the UAE and to um, Barbados. And you're right, everything is like sealed in. You, you can't really get the true atmosphere. You mentioned in the book, you have two wishes as a journalist. You want to be behind the bowler's arm so you get a good view, and you want to be able to get the atmosphere, which is... Nigh on impossible these days. And actually, you almost surprised me when I went to Johannesburg and the press box there is opened at the front. Mm. Excellent, actually, excellent. Yeah, you can actually hear the hear the crowd mm. and feel the crowd, can't you? Mm. But that's that's almost impossible everywhere else. I don't know.
1: um It's so sad. I, I think the only place where you actually want to be in an air conditioned press box and sealed in is Sri Lanka because yeah. it is so hot, um particularly if you're not at the peak of fitness. Um So yeah, uh, I would have. Air conditioned press boxes, Sri Lanka only, and Dunedin because that's so cold you need to be uh, warmed <laughs> up.
2: It's the holiday season, and that means there are stockings to be stuffed and elves to be cuffed. Today's sponsor, Manscaped, has gone global with the tools to guarantee you will score under the tree and the mistletoe. Manscaped is the leader in men's below the waist grooming and they have served more than 4 million men worldwide. If my maths is correct, that's 8 million Christmas baubles. Get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Just quote the promo code BADGER. Be the baldiest gift giver this festive season with Manscaped. Will you be staying up to watch the Ashes overnight or will you be catching up the following
1: day? I haven't really quite worked out um, the the way to go Uh, because Brisbane and Adelaide, uh, there's about three or four hours hours time difference, isn't there? Uh, Because one's Adelaide's a a day-nighter. So that changes the equation. Um, I mean, it's all new to me um, uh, because I didn't do the Ashes tour of 1991 but otherwise, I haven't been at home for one since the 1970s. Um, so I'm not sure exactly what modus operandi is, is is going to be most suitable.
2: What would be the Shieldberry prediction for this uh, five-match
1: Ashes series? Do you think England have a chance? All right, James. You tell me, uh, where are the Ashes, the five tests, going to be staged? Um, well, it
2: starts in Brisbane, doesn't it? I, I, for the first time ever, I'm actually commentating on the first day of the third test at Melbourne. So I, my Christmas right. day is going to be curtailed this year because I'm going to be on duty from, well, it starts right. at half 11 uh, right. at night. So that's that's the that's the third test match. I mean, they, they tend to order them in, in Australia so that they try and get uh, a, a decent advantage. But I've spoken to a couple of Australians who think that England might be able to catch them cold early on. Maybe maybe that's just them being pessimistic.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm just wondering uh, for for COVID reasons where the matches are going to be because it seems it's always seemed very unlikely and probably even more so now with now with our micron virus mm. variant um, that Perth isn't going to happen. Um, so
2: there's talk in the paper today, Shield, that the um, the fifth test might be revert back to Melbourne, so there might be two at Melbourne.
1: You're right, and that it has to be a day nighter because. The hours of Perth have to be replicated, which means um, the fifth test is then going to be a day-nighter. So we like two day-nighters. And you'd yep. have thought pink ball um, might be favouring Jimmy Anderson. So tell me where the test matches are going to be played. You know which ones are going to be day-nighters, and you know then I might have a stab at. Um, <laughs> that, that's,
2: this is a very politician.
1: Three-one 3-1 Aussie, um, yeah. but if Ben well, – here come all the ifs and buts. I mean, if, if Ben Stokes uh, comes off, then um, uh, it's possible that England can um, can uh, draw or win uh, because there's a the basic template, isn't there, um, uh, in the last 50 years because we don't really count 78-9 because uh, of World Series in um, all those uh, series, 70-71, 86-7 um, and 2010-11. Um, one England batsman scored three test hundreds, so England got big runs. Uh, Geoffrey Boycott, uh, uh, Chris Broad, Alistair Cook, um, and uh, one England pace bowler got a, uh, 25 wickets or more. Uh, John Snow in 70-71, uh, Jimmy Anderson last time. And 86-7 a bit different because you know, Graham dearly helped with the first test Ian Botham, the, the the fourth at Melbourne, um, and in between John Embry and Phil Edmonds kept uh, strangled Australia, kept them down to two runs and over. So that was a sort of bit of a different pattern. But the basic template there: somebody's got to make three Test hundreds. Ben Stokes, your likeliest, and somebody's got to take 25 wickets uh, in pace. But maybe that's different this time because you you've got so many pace bowlers out there. Maybe it's you know four getting 15 wickets. The Australian chapter of your book. I, I mean
2: your book is not a complete it's not a cricket book, is it? I mean there's a lot of cricket in there. Cricket a, cab, travel book. Yeah, exactly. It's a combination of travel writing, cricket writing, and a bit of memoir in there, isn't there? And there's a couple of stories you tell in the in the Aussie chapter. Um I really enjoyed the one about um Rodney Hogg bursting onto the scene and absolutely scuppering
1: your plans for the Sunday feature. Yes, I enjoyed that. And uh Uh, He ended up with, what, 40-odd wickets at 12. Uh, Yeah, I had to downplay him for reasons I tried to explain in the book because of a feature I'd written earlier in the week. And I didn't uh, realise at the time um, that was the first um, series in Australia where the Kookaburra ball was machine-stitched, hand-stitched. And so I was even prouder than normal, and um, (laughs) Hoggy was... Uh, Jagging it back big time to have Boyk's LBW. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he had the most tremendous series. I mean, even better than Mitchell Johnson, wasn't it, statistically, or something like that. And, uh, yes, that made a lot my working life a bit more difficult.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Another story I liked in the book. I mean, one one of the things I've always tried to do when I've gone away abroad to cover cricket is use the days off to actually explore a little bit, because I think there's too many people going... They get, they go on tours, they get out of bed, they go to the cricket ground. On a day off, they might go to the golf course or sit around the pool and they never actually really see the country. I like to explore and discover a few things. And you seem to be of the same ilk there.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was, uh, for the first, I don't know, 30 odd years of my career, I was a Sunday newspaper journalist. Uh, and that offers the opportunity to get away in the first part of the week, um, to go up country or um, disappear into the bush or whatever. Uh, and uh, hopefully find, you know, a cricketer who's come from upcountry or from the bush um, to make the expedition worthwhile. Uh, But now, uh, I mean, uh, particularly um, uh, nowadays, uh, there basically really isn't a day off. It's sort of far more of a business trip. Uh, And so, you know, the daily journalist cannot get away um, because there's always going to be a press conference and you have to be, you know, around the team, team hotel, in case something happens. Um, so it's it's very difficult to go off piste. I, I always am always
2: reluctant to ask somebody that's written a book to tell me all of the stories in the book, because that's what the uh, viewers and listeners want to be buying the book to find out. But there is a particular one where you head off on on a bike um, in Australia and then you feel a bit of pain on top of your head. <laughs> Would you like to retell that for me?
1: Well, uh, yeah it's um australia is uh man and nature in australia are, are less kind than they um uh, they are normally are in britain it's uh it's a uh, it's a wilder uh, more physical environment so yeah i was biking along uh somewhere near bunbury um in western australia on the coast south of perth um and i felt. This- yeah, always because it's Australia health and safety. You have to wear a helmet. Yeah, you know, fair enough. And I, I felt this bang on the back of my head, um, and then you know, not quite fell off, but um, kept biking. And then about twenty seconds later, another bang on the back of my head. Um, you know, a real thump. And I was, what on earth's going on? Uh, and apparently, it was a magpie uh, that likes to take tufts of hair um, from passing cyclists um, for its nest. I mean, you'd never get a, a British magpie doing something as um, impolite as that, would you? And, it, and it is, it, you just equate it with sort of club cricket in Australia, you know, when the sledging um, would be comparable to that magpie assaulting you. Uh,
2: I mean, and you either live with it or, or get out of the kitchen. And, and your, your friend over there told you that the kind of the gleam of your cycling helmet the magpie recognised there's hair underneath that and it might be good for his nest and basically to take mm. it away. So not, not <laughs> ideal for that, is it, as he's cycling along to have a magpie attacking you, a bionic magpie by the sounds of it. Um, and <laughs> If I could get you to basically go back at any stage over the, the last four decades and you could relive any one day in the press box and ha- have that
1: experience again, where would you take me? Um, The most dramatic test match I've seen was... Kingston 1986, when Malcolm Marshall and Patrick Patterson on his debut bowled, most frighteningly quick and dangerous um, bowling I've ever seen. Mm. Um, and I think that any uh, of those England batsmen had ever seen. Uh, Graham Gooch said it was the only time in his life he'd been afraid on a cricket field. Yeah. Um, and I think it's probably about day three. Um, and uh, England went in for their second innings and the pitch was beginning to crack, which is bad enough facing anybody. But uh, Patrick Patterson making his debut hometown, um, you, you know, a, a Jamaica lad who was um, trying to well, to make a living out of cricket. Um, and um, Marshall at the other end didn't want to see any anybody else bowling remotely as fast as he did. So uh, he was trying to match Patterson in speed. And the speed of the action, I, I I can't prove this because it was the last England test match of which there is no camera footage, or no video footage, no live footage um, at all. Uh, and the only way I can uh, convey the speed of the action is by what the ball was doing out there. Uh, one ball... Um, went over the batsman's head, Geoffrey Dujon's head, and pitched once before going over the boundary. Um, and I remember him both them, um, he took on Michael, Malcolm Marshall, um, bowling round the wicket. And the um, substitute, uh, it was Jimmy Adams. He was only about 17. He was probably still at school, but he was the, the substitute. And he was three quarters of the way back i.e. halfway between the square leg like empire and the boundary, and uh, B. hooked him, and it went uh, out to Adams, who, being a <laughs> brilliant fielder, even then, uh, fired it back into the keeper, and there was no time to take a run. <laughs> I mean, you, you could accuse Both of um, not trying with the single. Such was the speed of the action, so quick was the bowling, so quick was the shot, and so quick was the return, even though it went to deepish square leg no time for a single that that was the speed of the action I had
2: a, a comment in here from Hattie who says uh, so good to be part of this um Shield one of my journalistic people I truly look up to she says inspired her greatly um so you've got some fans out there Shield Who read your stuff and uh, and appreciate it
1: <laughs> well bless you Hattie yeah well, well, well all I can do is try and convey the enjoyment and excitement I've been able to experience these last 40 years. You know, try and get it on down on paper in the newspaper and and in books, so that others can can um, enjoy you know vicariously what I've been privileged to do.
0: and i sent the badger a message and now i'm on the podcast with this jingle if you would like to get in touch with the cricket badger podcast then tweet at cricket underscore badger
2: when i've been abroad um, as i say i've not been anywhere near as extensive as you but the you, you tend to find I mean, going to barbados the roundabouts are named after players and you can feel cricket coming out of the pores of the country almost. Going to the UAE, which is obviously a man-made, fairly new um, venture, getting into a taxi there, asking the taxi driver to take me to the um, the Zayed Stadium on the, on the periphery of Abu Dhabi, and the taxi driver just looks blank and there's a $35 million stadium there and he has no idea what it's been used for despite the fact he drives past it every day because cricket isn't quite... In the, um, in the psyche in the UAE that is in Barbados, you must have found that that to varying degrees that some countries just live and breathe cricket and some countries are a little more maybe apathetic towards it
1: Yeah, um, which is fair enough. Um, not everybody has to be uh, obsessed um, but I, I mean, think they, they,
2: they, they should be in a perfect world they should be
1: yeah it, <laughs> it, it would be near its perfect world if everybody um, played <laughs> cricket uh, and watched the game. Um, I suppose it would be a, a better place. Uh, but I think you're right, Barbados will be the place on Earth now and maybe, you know, for the last 100 years where a higher proportion of the population knows about cricket um, than any, anywhere else.
2: I was um, trying to find a quiet corner, a ground in Barbados, um, only a small pre-season friendly between two counties. And uh, I wanted to take my laptop somewhere quiet so I could just work on something. And they said, oh, there's a a room upstairs. I've never been anywhere more noisy. There were three gentlemen in this room and they were having a conversation and it is the most animated, noisy conversation, I think, because they are so passionate about the sport, aren't they? You you get into a conversation with a a Bayesian and they are passionate.
1: Yeah, um, I tried to convey that. We know what it's like to be in the press box in the West Indies. And yes, the the conversation that's going on, um, occasionally with a, <coughs> a preference being expressed by some of the journalists for the cricketers from the from their island. But uh, yeah, I mean the, the, the press box is part of the the main stand um to all intents and purposes in the West Indies, such as the animation and and uh enthusiasm. I asked you before
2: we came um we press record. If I could get tempt you to read a passage um, from your book, Beyond the Boundaries, um, maybe a favourite passage or a passage you know well, um, so the listeners and viewers can can listen to you telling it. Would you like to find a page and maybe read read a little bit to us? Just a page, or well, well, you you go for it, whatever you think is the right duration. It's your podcast. <laughs> well, it's a page and a half.
1: Okay, um, this is start of the the chapter about Pakistan. Are we sitting comfortably? I certainly am. Then I'll begin. It is said that we retain a soft spot for our first beloved. I retain one for the country I first toured, Pakistan. A dark-bearded 23-year-old Englishman came to Karachi in 1844 and was soon hailed as the finest mind of his generation. Richard Burton arrived as a surveyor in what is now Pakistan, avid for adventure. I was 23. When I arrived there on my first England tour in 1977, Burton took a boat up the River Indus through Sindh, uh, or Sindh, S-C-I-N-D-E, as he spelled it when he published the first account in English of this region. Another difference is that Burton was able to do enough local research to form the practical basis of his infamous translation of the Kama Sutra. Karachi was more than 150 years old when Burton first saw it and after the oysters that produced pearls had been exhausted, had become a fishing village of baked mud. The population of 2,000 was a mixture of Hindus, Muslims, and African slaves, and as a whole, manly and well-developed. While the women seldom wear veils in the streets, such was the potential of Karachi, Karachi that Burton thought it was the young Alexandria of our young Egypt. In other words, a a very promising port in the making. Beyond the settlement, however, the plain around us is nothing but an expanse of sand, broken into rises and falls by the furious winds, and scarcely affording thorns and, and fire plants sufficient to feed a dozen ghosts and camels. In order to travel around Pakistan, I arrived a fortnight before the start of England's tour in 1977, and before the snows cut off the mountain passes. Burton, multilingual, was making his survey of Sindh as the only army officer who could speak Sindhi. And he was smitten when he beheld in Larkana a nautch or dancing girl. He called her the Donna of Larkana, clad as she was in gold, jewellery, brocade and satin. Your eyes, weary with the beauties of her face, shift to her figure where... If perfection ever was, there you discover it. She floats forward so softly that trace of exertion is imperceptible. Slowly waving her white arms, she unexpectedly stands close to you, then turning with a pirouette. Reliable rumour has it that a Pakistan batsman would better not be named and who is visiting a Notch girl of similar charms in Lahore had to make a sudden escape and fell off a roof, thus ending his cricket career. The donor of Larkana was off limits. Her younger sister, however, might not have been. After Burton's death, his wife unearthed a notebook of his unpublished poems, including one entitled, Past Loves. Burton in his youth had got around, she discovered, as much as his later Welsh namesake. So this is one verse he wrote. The Nubians and the Abyssinians sent me at least a score of minions. Uh, And you remember, Burton went in search of the Nile uh, in those parts. So uh, a score, Burton's total has already risen to 20. Yet his all-time favourite, so it would seem from this poem, was Nurjan, the Donna's younger sister. But of them all, the fair Nurjan, the Venus of Baluchistan, was most to my mind. So yeah that, that's um, when I arrived in Pakistan I didn't quite follow in Burton's footsteps but <laughs> it was uh, yeah I've got a soft spot for Pakistan having been my first tour
2: it was looking like cricket was returning to Pakistan properly wasn't it until recently but um it would be uh, it'd be lovely to get it back there wouldn't it yes
1: i mean what a disastrous bit of uh decision making that was i mean Two T20 games in uh, Pakistan. It wouldn't have to have been you know, the absolute top first 11 to go there and, and, and not to carry that out. I mean, well, heads have rolled, haven't they, the ECB? Uh, or at least one head since. Um, yeah, just disastrous decision-making. I said at the time I've been on longer stag dues, and that's always going to be.
2: Uh... <laughs> I'm sure you have, James. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to put that in a book. I'm going to show you a picture now of a, a very,
1: uh, where very
2: there's, there's the man in action. Um, <laughs> and Where's uh, the leading
1: arm? Why haven't I got my leading arm up? I've been, <laughs> been playing for 80 years and I haven't got my leading arm up high enough. Anyway, that's what I'm working on in pre-season training. You've, you're
2: saying here, because you, you look like you've got black socks on, but the caption corrects that by the fact that you've got um, knee pads, oh, sorry, shin guards on, haven't you? yes.
1: Have you ever had it drilled back straight at your ankles?
2: <laughs> um, I've managed to escape that so far. But uh, the um, that that's basically, it says in the caption that, you know, I, I guess advancing years means you can't get down as quickly. Uh, no,
1: no. Uh, so, uh, and you don't want to, you can't afford another boundary, so I stick my um, foot out and uh, try and stop it that way.
2: But you, you, um, you've taken quite a few wickets. I can't find the little... Um, the blurb here, but you record wicket-taker for your club or something? Uh, yeah,
1: well, uh, one of my teammates has digitised all the scorecards since he started playing about 20-odd tw- years ago. Um, so, obviously, the scorecards before that have not been digitised. And simply on the basis of the digitised one in the last tw- 22 years or something, I've uh, taken most wickets. So, um, they're lies, they're damn lies, they statistics, uh, and then most deceptive of all, there are records based on the scorecards which have been digitised. Yeah, um, I, I suppose
2: you'd phrase that as the leading wicket-taker of the modern era, wouldn't you? Oh, I wouldn't qualify it like that. I'd just
1: say, leading <laughs> recorded wicket-taker. Recorded, that's the thing. Yeah, so I mean, plenty of old-timers took 100 wickets in a season you know, 50 years ago,
2: but I'll take it as they say. Going back through your time in, in the game and going abroad, obviously because this book is about your travels abroad, um, if I was to give you sufficient money to buy a nice first-class air fare to go to any of these countries, which one would you pick as a holiday destination? For a holiday:
1: Yeah um, how long's a holiday? Um, <laughs> two weeks I'm <and laughs> we'll give you two weeks. Okay, I think I'm going to uh, and it's not economy, is it? Oh no 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 you
2: can you can stretch, you oh, can stretch yeah. right.
1: In that case I think I, I'd make it New Zealand and specifically on the North Island on the West Coast. Um there's a, a smallish town called Raglan yeah. and uh, I love boogie boarding body boarding you know lying on a board and being b- bought ashore by the waves and Raglan is I think uh, along with Crane Beach in Barbados the, those are the two Favorite um, boogie boarding venues. I was—I should say—I was—I was thinking of calling the book um, "Boogie Boarding with Blowers," but um, <laughs> I, I, I've never been boogie boarding with Henry Blowfelt, and I—I I think you'd have rang up and said, oh, my, "My my dear old thing, I, I, I love you dearly, but my lawyers are going to sue you for for, for <laughs> suggesting that I've been boogie boarding with you."
2: And when I went to Barbados once, shield I went—I hired a car, I went, I did a circuit of the islands. It's not a big right. island in a day. I, I ended up sitting on Crane Beach for an hour, just on my own, I had it oh, to myself.
1: Oh, it is fantastic for boogie boarding. Uh, just one proviso that the Sargasso Sea hasn't um, brought in a lot, lot of seaweed. But even then, you know, the the temperature is just perfect. The waves are, are perfect. Uh, yeah, many a happy, many a happy um, hour spent there. Yeah 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 yeah. I've never done I've never done boogie boarding. Um I certainly didn't do that
2: day anyway. The um my my period in press boxes a lot of the days that you have in press boxes are made by your companions in those press boxes the chat, mm. um the helping yeah. each other out and uh, and the camaraderie that often extends into the evening as well. Uh, I I mm. guess you you've got exactly the same kind of slant on that yourself.
1: Um yeah, I <sighs> I have to say that when I joined uh, the press box, I must have been a pretty insufferable twenty-two, twenty-three year old. Uh, everybody's sort of twice my age uh, on the international, uh, you know, the, the England international circuit. So, um, you yeah, know, everybody wore a jacket and you know, blue trousers and wore a tie, um, but I didn't. Um, now is so much more individu- individuality allowed. Yeah, some fascinating differences. Uh, in those days, um, you got the alcohol flowing before the lunch interval. And I can remember seeing John Arlott for the first time in the Tunbridge press, press box in 1973. I thought, he's getting something out of his, his basket. Yeah, it's a bottle, it's a bottle. What is it? You know, is it some nineteen, you know, twenty-seven vintage from um, France? And it was from a supermarket called Nicholas. And you know, it was the most straight plonk. But I suppose that was just the first bottle of uh, maybe one or two. So yeah, in those days, um, everybody drank and uh, just had a sort of some sandwich at lunchtime. Whereas uh, a couple of years later, um, Cornhill uh, became the insurance, and they offered uh, food and wine for lunch. Um, but nowadays, it's just food. So um, that's one big difference. The uh, the members of the press corps are younger, and often, you know, some of them go for 10-mile runs before breakfast. Um, and... Nobody in my day when I started um, did anything like that. Um, golf on 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 a, on a rest day was the activity of choice. I so, can, yeah, can huge differences in lifestyle. I can
2: remember being a spectator at Benson Hedges' um, cup game, walking around the back of the stands and they were doling out um, boxes of cigarettes. And the sponsors, mm. you know, times change quite rapidly, don't they, in terms of things mm. like that. The relationship between press and players has changed down the years as well, hasn't it? I mean, I've seen the pictures in your book and I know you mentioned it in your book about um, being on tour and you know, having drinks at night with the players and what have you. Whereas there is a little bit more of a separation between the, the press and the players these days.
1: Yeah, far more so. Um, I mean, the younger members of the press corps are closer to the players, I would say, in general than the older ones. Um but it's still nothing like what it used to be um you know when i started you know, all the press and all the players met in the bar every evening and everything um you know what happened out there um we got to know and uh, it was all all in in confidence um so uh nowadays i don't know the last 20 years been sort of uh, at least one press conference every day it seems you know officially orchestrated so um, we have a limited exercise, uh, insight into each, what each player who's put up uh, for that daily press conference uh, is thinking and doing, but it's not like the sort of complete in-trust confidence um, that you can do. But um, writing up the quotes is you know, what, what we're fed uh, on a daily basis, um, whether it's uh, the best thing for the reader. I don't know, it's for readers to judge. Can you see a time where
2: there won't be press boxes and people will just cover cricket from home effectively? I mean, the people have been doing that in COVID, and I think there's a lot of good that's come out of COVID in terms of working practices. But one of the dangers, as far as journalism is concerned, that newspapers, etc. think, oh, why, why should I send that fella to Australia when he can mm. watch it overnight at home and write
1: it up from home? Mm. It seems to me that some newspapers are thinking exactly that. Uh, I, I think certain newspapers will... Um, Always want to have somebody there because, um, why? Because, um, I think you're if you're in the crowd, preferably behind the arm, uh, you have uh, a better feel than anybody else for which way a match is going. Mm. Um, this may apply to, to, to white ball. Um, I wouldn't have seen enough T20 internationals to be able to say that for sure, but the one thing. Obviously, if you're out there playing, you you get details uh, which the the people on the uh, outside of, of the of the boundary don't have access to. Uh, but just to be able to stand back and see how the game is going, I think you get a a a, a surer feel for that from that perspective than any other. Um, so watching on telly doesn't give you that feel of which way the game is going, because you just sort of see the way that the body language of the players, you know, are they getting you know a bit downhearted? Um, are they really sensing that that they're in? Um, so there is a uniquely uh, informed in that sense perspective to be had by being at the ground, uh, preferably behind the arm. I, I think as well, Shield, The if you're watching it off the TV,
2: commentary teams are really good, but you are influenced by their opinion rather than actually formulating your own, aren't you, as well?
1: And you're subject to what the, um,
2: the editor, uh, the pictures yeah. that he wants to show you. Just got a couple more questions for you before I let you go and enjoy the rest of your day. If I was to give you a choice of going to any um, ground in the world, I know when I went to um, um, Cape Town, uh, I, I, I already knew Table Mountain was up there and the ground was going to be good because I've seen it on the television. But that was one of the few places I've actually walked into the edge of the outfield and the grounds opened up in front of me and I've actually just gone, wow, this is incredible. Um, I, I guess
1: there's a few on your list like that, aren't there? Oh, favourites, yeah. Um, yeah, i got fond memories of uh, playing in a media match in uh, Cape Town a couple of years ago. And how e- easier it was to see the ball, the light, uh, in yeah. in Cape Town, the clarity of it um uh so yeah we just to see the ball coming at you um it's, it's nice to hang on um yeah i'd have several um you know top uh, half dozen uh test venues around the world um it depends which bit you're looking at is it is it the ground or the backdrop um and um but whatever the combination, uh, Sabina Park's fantastic because you can see the Blue Mountains beyond. Um, if you're at the George Headley stand end, um, Port of Spain, uh, the mountains behind at um, on one end. If you're watching from the Trigarity Road at the main pavilion end um, and see the hills beyond that, um, just magnificent sights. St. Vincent, England played a one day international there, and you can see um, across the Channel from St. Vincent to Backway, uh, and the old ship going past, you know, the waters of glistening. Um, that's a one-day international, uh, not a test ground. Um, Adelaide Oval's obviously a uh, wonderful sight from the city end and, um, you know, the old scoreboard and St. Peter's Cathedral behind. Um, but some of the boutique grounds in New Zealand are as, as beautiful mm. as any. You, mount Monganui you get the the shot of the mount, um, but the ground as a whole, you know, it's behind a sort of timber yard and uh, um, it's not quite as, as attractive as it sounds. Um, Hagley Oval, Christchurch, i would say, is right up there. Um, it's just a few a couple of temporary stands put up, but it's in the middle of this uh, oval uh, uh, and the trees there. Trilat trilat, the River Avon and, you know, Voting on there and it's, yeah it's just it's that's as beautiful as anywhere
2: it's said that you you nearly made 500 test matches is that is that do you, do you know what the exact number is
1: no i haven't counted up uh new zealand cricket um or kane williamson on their behalf kindly gave me a, a pendant for marking 450 at wellington a couple of years ago no christchurch uh, a couple of years ago um so a few um some more since then, but not all because of COVID.
2: You, you weren't tempted just to stay on a, another 18 months, or whatever it would have taken, to get to 500?
1: Uh, uh, Richie Benno um, uh, saw 500, uh, and I think he should uh, hold the we- world record permanently.
2: <laughs> it's, it's not a bad um, thing to have the silver medal behind Richie Benno, is it? He was, he, he was all right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and he played in 60s, 70s, <laughs> didn't he?
2: That's not fair. <laughs> uh, the final question, Shield, came from Andrew on Twitter, who said uh, he's looking forward to your book. Um, is it going to be available on audio book as well, or is it is it just going to be on um, in in hard copy?
1: I don't know. Um, I hadn't uh, um, heard or thought of a, an audio version, but um, hopefully that page or so will be going on. But thank you for the uh, suggestion. I shall and ask the thought- publishers. They can,
2: they can cut out your page and a half from this. That that gives them a head start, doesn't it? When you read mm-hmm. that out, anyway. Um, Shield Berry, it's been an absolute pleasure. Beyond the Boundaries, travels on England cricket tours and available in all good and bad bookshops, I guess, and available online now in time for Christmas for loved ones that like cricket. And if you like cricket yourself, it's a very good read. As I say, I've read the first couple of chapters. And I intend to devour the rest of it over the, uh, the forthcoming week. Shield, it's been a pleasure to uh, catch up with you and uh, have a very Merry Christmas. Enjoy the Ashes. Thank you very much, James, and listeners. And uh, thanks, everybody out there, for watching, Stroke Listening, um, coming up towards 500. Got, hopefully, um, I mean, Shield's a very special guest, but a very special guest coming up for uh, number 500, and uh, hopefully I'll be able to tell you a little bit about more about that very soon indeed. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks again to Shield, and I'll see you all again very soon indeed.